Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, as always, a Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? What up? How's it going, brother? It's awesome. Love that. God is awesome. God, Baruch Hashem, God is awesome. That's the truth of it. <laughs> uh, what up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. Thanks for joining us today. And what up and shalom to everybody listening on the other side. Of the speakers, we are so happy that you're listening, whether you're listening live on Wednesday morning with us at TRRadio.com or you're finding us through some other means like YouTube or perhaps on our podcast site, which is also TRRadio.com. Before we get started, I'd like to say a big congratulations to our good friends Adam and Mary Smith on their newborn baby, Yofi. Congratulations. Five pounds, three ounces. That is a small baby, but all in good health. So, Like Adam said, he's thinking, not sure, she might be the youngest listener today. <laughs> yes. What, what is she, uh, a couple days old? Yofi Smith might be the very youngest listener. We don't know for sure. Yes, but we think so. <laughs> okay. Hey, uh, so before we get started, let's also just tell everyone this show is made possible by several different people and they are Gary Springer is our uh, radio coordinator and our programmer so he's responsible for a lot of this and then Mark Randall is also in charge of our chat room and all things web related so if you're with us in the chat room a big thanks to Mark Randall and of course, all of this is made possible through the generous donations of our listeners. So thank you everyone who has contributed to Keep Tour Resource Radio on the air. We very much appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. Um, I am in a very odd headspace right now. And the reason why is because I've been studying, as I said last week, for the UMJA conference, not to be confused with the UMJC conference. Uh, The UMJA conference, uh, for those who might not know about or who the UMJA are, they are a group of different congregations throughout the United States and, well, I guess the world. They hold to one Torah theology, as do we. 3.5 days, Yofi is. Adam Adam has just typed in. Anyway, okay. Um, So uh, they are one Torah. And we, that is, I say we as in all of Torah resource, are not affiliated with the UMJA. Uh, we, however, my father, years ago... Institu- right, there's no formal institutional... Yes. Uh, my, my father, years ago, was asked to be the keynote speaker at the UMJA conference in Spokane, Washington, which he did. And every year since then, I think every single year since then, they've asked him to come back and be the keynote speaker again, which my father has done. And uh, I think... T- Three years, maybe three or four years ago, they asked Rob if he would also like to speak, which he did. 
Last year, they asked Gary Springer if he would like to speak. He's um, one of the teachers at Torah Resource Institute and also our programmer at Torah Resource Radio, uh, which he did. So, And then uh, they had somebody who uh, didn't show up for one reason or another who had an hour-long slot. And it just so happened that I had a paper that I had written for Rob's class. And they asked if I'd like to present that. So last year was the first year that all of the staff, all of the teaching staff at Torah Resource Institute uh, taught at the UMJA conference. And this year they asked us if we'd all like to, uh, to, to speak again. So I've been preparing, as has Rob. I think my dad just started preparing yesterday. I, I have two hours to present, and uh, <laughs> I'm already about 10 pages into my paper writing my paper and I just finished the introduction. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's where my headspace is. So that if things feel a little discombobulated on this show, it's because normally I try to dedicate at least a day, sometimes up to two days preparing for uh, each, each Wednesday when we, when we go on air and I haven't, I just haven't had the time to dedicate that much now, last week we didn't even have show notes, so I'm doing better is than there, last week. Is there uh, fasting and prayer also in those two days of preparation? <laughs> well, there certainly should be, uh, that's for sure. But one of the things that uh, one of the things that actually helps this show a lot is is the emails and the interaction from the people that listen. Mm. Gary says he's preparing as well for the UMJ conference. He, I think, what did he get? Two or three hours. Gary got. Gary yeah, got two a, or three. Yeah, he he's he's presenting on on uh, family counseling, I believe, which will be very good. And, and once this is once we present, it usually I mean I'm backlogged. I'm the person who does all the video editing and everything at Tor Resource uh, Tor and uh, usually the summer we go and we teach as much as possible. I videotape everything, and then the through the the rest of the year is when I edit all these things. Well, I'm backlogged now. We have hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of video that have not been edited just because I haven't had time to edit it. Uh, so who knows? Who knows when, when you'll be able to see it. But sooner or later, Lord willing, if, if the Almighty uh, so wills it, then we will get all of these uh, teachings up for people to be able to watch and see. So as I was yeah, saying... Yeah, and keep us... And, and all, we really would be grateful for those who are praying for us. Mm-hmm that our presentations would be clear and uh, that would bring the truth of the scriptures, glorifying Yeshua's name. Yeah, honoring Yeshua for and sure. And that would feed his flock. So even though we're talking on different topics, our aim is to edify the body of Messiah by the truth of his word. And so keep us in prayer as that's our aim. And we know there's all sorts of things that like to distract us and want us to, yeah, to not do that. So Lois uh, just says, I'd love to be there. Rayuel sent out, he's, and he's the president of the UMJA right now. Rayuel sent out invitations, and it is certainly tempting. Lois, you should totally come, because I don't think we've ever met face-to-face, and I would love to meet you face-to-face. Um, okay, so let's get to one of our first topics. We have a lot today because basically we're answering, we're not really opening the mailbag as it were, but we have a lot of emails, thank heavens, because uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. So this one is from someone named Bethany. I love this email. (laughs) This was really good. This kind of like made my day. 
Um, this is this is the part of the email. This is her email now. She says this is the part of the email where I should probably tell you all the great episodes of your show that I've enjoyed listening to, or some of the topics that you have caused me to question where I stand on them. But I don't actually listen to your show. I love that. I love it too. I, I just know what I'd love what? to have a recording of her saying that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we could just play that as a clip. Uh, but I don't actually listen uh, yeah, to your show. I, I don't actually listen to your show. I just hear bits and pieces when my dad that's listens my in. Favorite, that's my favorite clip for today. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Okay, she goes on. As a 22-year-old, I did edit slightly edit this. I just took out a couple of lines that I but uh, this is these are all her words. As a 22-year-old, a young lady in the Torah observant or messianic Hebrew roots whatever movement, I realized that many of the Torah commands, Bible's themes and main theme revolve around the idea of husband and wife or family. I would like to be married and have a family someday sooner rather than later, hopefully. I would like to hear you to discuss Yahweh's role and man's role in finding, she puts in quotes, finding a spouse. Maybe the same principles that apply to predestination free will uh, will also apply to finding a spouse slash waiting for God to bring a spouse. I think Caleb used the wording of one view places hope in self and the other places hope in God. How does a person's view on the subject affect the way they spend their single years. Do you believe that a man or woman should wait until God brings their spouse to them? Uh, and then she gives the example of Adam and Eve and Jacob and Rachel. Or should there be an active search? She gives the example of Isaac and Abraham and Eliezer and Rebecca. What's a woman's role and what's a man's uh, during the single years? Could you also discuss living at home versus moving out? Preparing for marriage versus preparing to be single. Maybe you could also discuss contentment. Is it the absence of longing and desire? Or is it a choice in spite of feelings, whether hungry or well-fed? I think one of the reasons that we haven't ever actually touched on this is because I don't think that there's necessarily a great answer. <laughs> what do you think, Rob? You got kids right in that age. You got uh, you got a yeah, son. It's who's... not easy. I just... It's a that's a great question. Oh, you know, of course, and it seems obvious. Just prayer, 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 prayer. That's one important aspect. That, that is an obvious, but that is obvious. I mean, that's a give me. Yeah. So the, I, I think one of the things that uh, you know, I went I went through a little bit of this too. I didn't get married until I was thirty. Um. And so I certainly understand the waiting process. Um, you know, basically, with with the uh, writing of Joshua Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that's when things kind of changed in, in what I would consider the Christian, the Orthodox Christian, maybe I'm using that word wrong, the um, conservative Christian, maybe I should say, uh, conservative Christian slash uh, messianic worldview of dating some for the good i think some for the bad one of the problems is is that we uh, a lot in the messianic movement there's a lot of people who are pushing a betrothal model and uh and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that but the question is is how does that work and i don't think that it's really been figured out how how it actually works the other thing is is that you have a lot you know you have parents who 
uh, they met their their spouses through a dating model. And so they're trying to come at a different model, which is betrothal, uh, those kind of things. Uh, but they've never actually gone through those things themselves. I think there are flaws when it comes to the, the so-called betrothal model that, that some have put forward. I think that there are good things uh, when it comes to the betrothal model that some people have put forward. Um, one thing is for sure. People in the believing communities have realized that the dating model is, for lack of a better word, dangerous. What father wants to send his daughter alone with a gentleman uh, somewhere in our day and age? The answer is not many. And the other the other problem that I see with the the betrothal model is that it it's a stickler for anyone that's younger. But if a older person is, uh, you know, if if two uh, eligible bachelor slash bachelorettes are, uh, you know, in their late thirties or something like that, then it kind of falls by the wayside. It kind of reverts back to almost a dating model. So there, I I think one of the problems is, is that you don't have, uh, it hasn't been figured out completely. What do you think, Rob? I like how, what was her name? Bethany. Bethany. Bethany, I like how she looked at the models from the patriarchs and she's noticing multiple type of approaches from the scriptures. And I think in terms of community that, well, I know Beit Hillel would be an example. Um, you know, I... I'm not, I don't live in Tacoma, so I'm not part of the, the Beit Halel local community. But I know that there have been, through the larger networks, there have been wonderful marriages that have, you know, wonderful relationships that have come together and have, have worked out uh, that way. So there's, uh, I think that's a good fruit of being connected with a larger network, family network or um what do I want to say? People who are all of the same mind. And, and you know what, that's one of the, one of the hopes is that when we have larger communities like that, um, children grow up and they can uh, meet people who are in a larger network that is quote unquote safe, safer anyway, in terms of um, some of those basic ideological issues and that can be helpful but um but but that doesn't solve if you're in a a little marginal community somewhere you know and you don't have a bigger network of people who are all of the same mind um, that can be tough and i don't know about you know I, i know some of the churches in spokane have singles ministry they even have like a singles pastor i think to like help singles people um but i don't i I have no idea how those types of social setups work and then how many people come and want to take advantage of the social aspect but they're not really they're not really in it because of 
their relate pardon me their relationship with the Lord, but it's just like another opportunity to you know to meet people. So, boy, I I don't have any answers. Mike in the chat room says uh, that uh, Bethany is his daughter, and I knew that actually. Um, and she has a website. I'm not going to give it out on air because I don't, well, should I, Mike? I don't know. Type in if I should give out her her uh, her blog on on the air. Anyway. Um, um, yeah, so we have a lot going on in the chat room right now, and I think this is this is kind of <laughs> it's interesting because um, you know Adam says the betrothal model has has a lot of the same problems as as the dating model does. I I would agree with that. Uh, everybody has a little bit different idea of what betrothal is. Uh, Mike says that his oldest daughter wa- used the betrothal model, and once again, I think we'd have to define our terms of on what exactly the betrothal model is. Um, I think that when it comes to there was there was an article written about the betrothal model and um, how how that should work and um, well well, I shouldn't say how it should work the problems that this person saw with the betrothal model and uh, there were some very good points made and some of the things that I felt uh, put in some of the situations which was that uh, when a when a man has to come to a father and and uh, talk to a father and, and all these kind of things, there's a certain level of expectation that's automatically assumed, maybe not by the father, but certainly by the person, by the man who's coming to the father. So there's a certain level of expectation that's already, you know, there's no room for uh, trying to get to, uh, trying to understand if this person is right for you. It seems, om- it feels almost like you're already making a, commitment to that person uh, that in some ways shouldn't be broken. And so that's one of the problems. Um, Let's listen to what Joshua Harris actually has to say about his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Um, Here we go. Hang on just a sec. This is going to take a few seconds. For some reason, my computer is running extra slow today. Most people have an opinion about this book. A lot of people really dislike it, but the heart behind it is not to force someone not to date or not have relationships with the opposite sex, the message behind it is really uh, don't pursue romance until you're really ready for commitment. Enjoy your single years, don't have the mindset that you have to have the boyfriend or the girlfriend, and really to, to make God your focus in your single years. So Harris says, okay, so the point of the book was was not to say that you shouldn't have a relationship with the opposite sex or even to try to push dating out of the equation, but rather to say that a real relationship shouldn't get in the way of your relationship with God. I completely agree with that. Uh, one of the reasons that I'm trading so lightly is because I, I think that uh, there's not really a, a very definitive answer here one way or the other. I think that, Rob, you're absolutely right. Prayer is obviously the most important and should be the first and foremost. When it comes to predestination, uh, do we believe, you know, do I believe in a soulmate? No, I don't believe in soulmates. Um, and we could talk about that. My my grandmother was married to two uh, believing, wonderful men. The first one died when he was, uh, what, how old was my grandfather? 65 or so. Died of cancer, and a brain tumor. So, uh, you know, and then she got remarried. And uh, she then that husband died of uh, Alzheimer's. And uh, she's, oh, I don't know, in her late 80s now. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think that there's anyone significant in her life at the, uh, at the, uh, care home that she's in, but, uh, 
maybe you know, who knows <laughs> maybe she'll get married again the point is is that you know we can't I, I wouldn't say that that either one of them was a soulmate as opposed to the other one um, God put both of those men into her life and for a specific reason so um, but I will say this I think that the Lord does have the Lord definitely sees who our spouses are and uh, who and and brings us together there's no doubt about that. But just like uh, the locks on your house or the locks on your car or something else, you don't just walk out of your house and say, well, I believe that the Lord is going to uh, is going to uh, protect my house, so I'm not going to lock my doors. You, you know, the Lord gives up, and it's just like evangelism. We go into, uh, we go into evangelism knowing that God uses specific means to bring people to him and that we could be that means. And so uh, I think that we need to take an active role in trying to, uh, you know, uh, find the person that the Lord has set out for us. And I think that each one of our parents, uh, you know, the Messianic movement is, is relatively new. So the younger generation, my generation that has come up now and the younger generation even, uh, are c- coming into a new kind of idea of how relationships work. Um, you know, our, my parents found each other and they did so by dating each other. And, uh, my grandparents found each other by dating each other. And I would say that the majority of people within the Messianic movement, their parents found each other through dating. And, uh, so we're trying to move away from a dating model. I understand that. And and I think for, you know, in some ways, uh, for, for, for good reason. Um, but I don't think that, uh, I, I think that a lot of the different communities have different ideas and different, uh, well, different ideas of what betrothal and courting is and how that should work. I'm not going to say that one is right or one is wrong, but I think that, uh, it's, I think it's difficult for parents who have never gone through something like that to relate to what it must be like to try to be put in that situation. Anything else to say on that, Rob? Nope. <laughs> okay, let's move on. I, I like. I, I mean, I, back to the clip of the of the author. Yeah. I think there's there's some wisdom in the idea of, you know, back to the idea of prayer, but learning to to keep the Lord first and not letting the social pressure, yeah, or, like or this idea coming from outside. Oh, you need to you should be doing this or you should be doing that. And that's, that's a tough place to be is because we, we always want to be mindful whether we're responding out of peer pressure or out of what's the genuine heart's desire before the Lord. You know what I mean? And, and, and and that's going to be an issue that's true in a lot of different areas of our life, not just in courtship or seeking a, a husband or a wife, et cetera. Um, but it's a an important part to our spiritual maturity that we're going to learn whether we're single, whether we're married or, you know, whatever our situation, learning to discern between, uh, you know, our heartfelt cry to the Lord uh, versus uh, social pressure and expectation. And we want to discern those that we're not uh, spending time chasing something that's really a reaction to to a fear of not being perceived a certain way etc no doubt 
Uh, Bethany, by the way, her blog spot is everydayset-apart.weebly.com for anyone who was wondering. Okay. Um, do you all think there is an age at which one should start dating or courting or betrothing? <laughs> oh, Robert, good, good question. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I take, I take, I will definitely take the betrothal view on that one. I don't think that, that, uh, dating should occur until someone's, uh, in a position to be able to get married. Um, you know, if you're still in high school and you don't have a job and, uh, your parents pay for your car insurance and, uh, you know, then why exactly would you start dating or, you know, that kind of thing, maybe cultivating a relationship so that, uh, once you do have a job and, and are able to, uh, you know, move out and, and get married, then, then, okay, I understand that, but, um, you know, I think that uh, the idea in betrothal and courting is that we need to be looking towards, you know, there needs to at least be the uh, availability of an, an end goal of marriage. I think that that's the main emphasis of, of betrothal, courting, uh, that kind of thing. And and for that, I agree. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't encourage our kids to go out uh, on and and have romantic relationships with people that are never going to be their spouses. I, I think that's obvious, right? Um, so yeah, but the other question, what was the other question in here? Um, there was one other question in here. Give me just a second. Wait until spouse. Oh, moving out. <laughs> this is a difficult one. This is really difficult. Um, you know, I think that, uh, You know, back in the day when, when we actually had arranged marriages, um, and, and that's kind of one of the thoughts with, with uh, betrothal and, and, and that kind of thing is that, you know, if you're going to have a, an arranged marriage, or just arrange a marriage, um, but if you're going to have love, then the people need to be able to get to love each other, right? Uh, so there's two different models. The, uh, the arranged marriage model uh, back in the day, it worked for those people in that time and in that place. Whether it would work in Western culture and civilization, who knows? Probably not, to be honest. Um, so a, a girl or you know, was supposed to live with her, and in many cases a, a man too, was supposed to live with his parents until he found a significant other, right? And then they would then they would get married and they would leave and they would make their own home. And so you had this idea that the father was protecting the daughter. I've talked with my father many times about the idea of should uh, should a a father allow his daughter to move out before you know and once again we live in in Western society so once your child's eighteen you don't really have a huge say over it unless you've raised your child to respect you in a way that they're willing to stay. Um, but the point is is that uh, you know back before uh, the the or the uh, I'm sorry, the arranged marriage model was kind of done away with. Basically, the father was in charge of the daughter. He was the protector of the daughter until the, until the husband came along. Then the husband became the protector of that, that female. And you, this is where you had all these, uh, you know, the bride prices and all these kind of things. These were actually pr- to protect the woman. The, the husband would give a bride price to the father. The father was supposed to, 
supposed to. This didn't happen most of the time. Uh, but he was supposed to keep it. And if something ever happened to the husband, if he was killed in battle or if he died of disease or if for some reason he divorced her, then she got all this money. She got the bride price. And that's what she was able to live on. Supposedly. That's how it was supposed to work. So a, a husband or a father would never send his daughter out of his house until she was married because he was the protector. Now in our day and age, you have things like college you know, I, I'm all for women being, you know, I'm 100% for women being educated and, uh, you know, having a college education, being able to support themselves. I'm, I'm for that. Um, and I know that there are people that are against that, but I am 100% for it. So, uh, how does that work with a father and, uh, and those kind of issues? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't have a daughter yet. I will in a, in a couple of weeks and maybe once she grows up, I'll have better answers. What do you think, Rob? You going to send your daughter to college? Well, that's, I, I'm glad we touched on this, and it's in the chat room too, is how, how parents raise their kids and what kind of expectations uh, are we raising our kids with the expectation that for the sons that they're going to get a, a craft, they can have a stable income for the purpose of marriage and raising up a family. Are we, are we raising men in a way that, uh, for those of us who have daughters, that the kind of men we would like to see come uh, and be potential husbands to our daughters. So definitely the value system that we're uh, building at home, which Lord willing will be basically the Shema, right? That we're, mm -hmm. we're, we've got love of God front and center. We've got teaching, uh, intergenerational teaching of, of what that unpacks to be, but also you mentioned the, the Western culture that we're in. And so our challenge is that, uh, I like for example, I come out of the 80s kind of really having drunk in a lot of, of secular culture, right? And had to uh, sort through a lot of enculturation that I uh, had. Whereas, you know, my kids have a different kind of environment that they're being raised but each, each generation has to kind of take, they're taking what they've learned and then they're taking new things that are exposed to in the world that reshape the way they think. And, and it's difficult for me to imagine what it would be like, for example, with uh, texting or something, you know, like my kids have phones and they have friends that, and we allow them to, to text with limited circles of their friends. And but I didn't know, I, it creates a whole new way of thinking about the world and connect, interconnectivity than I experienced. You know, I can't, I, we didn't have an internet, you know, when I was in high school. So how the, there's some cultural issues that I still, as a dad, don't really understand uh, as clearly maybe as I could the challenges facing our, our kids today. And, um, you know, there's... Uh, whole bunch of issues I think that are all connected but those expectations that our kids have the you know I boy do I want to protect my daughter oh but uh, on the flip side she she loves to participate in the now she we homeschool but she participates in the local high school has a top-notch drama department they do these drama productions they just did Mary Poppins and she was just a big part of that production and there's a whole network of friends that she's 
gained um, in that world. And so there's always this sense of like, is she okay? Is this a safe environment? Helping her passion, the, the things that God has put in her and that her skills and her talents, helping her grow in those. Um, and there's kind of this holding on and letting go kind of thing that, that happens. And always just immersing the whole thing in prayer. And, and my wife and I, we, we've prayed in advance for the spouses of our kids. Mm-hmm. So we don't know who they are, but we're praying kind of for the profile, right, of what we, what we want for our kids. And, and we, we pray this way, and we put it into the Lord's hands, and it feels scary because part, you know, on one hand, I want to control it. I'd like really, really like to control it. On the other hand, you know, it's, it's all in God's hands. And so uh, that's why I guess coming back to prayer and trying to, as parents, help our kids grow, you know, to identify their strengths, help them grow, to challenge them appropriately in, in areas, uh, but also to pray as parents, we can pray for the future spouse and pray that wherever they are, that they're coming to greater knowledge of the Lord, that they're learning uh, his ways and proper priorities and that they will be just one blessing in a relationship of marriage. Now, do we have ultimate control whether God's going to, how he's going to answer those prayers? No, of course not. We always, it's always his will be done, but, but we can ask for that. And, uh, that's, that's the only, and then that we just trust, you know, I, um, now that doesn't mean if you're doing that, you just stay at home and you stay, a, you just avoid all interaction, you know, with the outside world. Of course we have to interact. Um, that's, that's, that's what comes to mind for me. The one thing I'd, I'd say about uh, moving out, when it comes to females uh, moving out of their parents' home, I, obviously, you know, we live in a Western culture. We live in, in the culture that we live in, and that not, doesn't necessarily have to dictate, uh, you know, what is right and wrong, obviously. However, I think that um, in our day and age, and within the Messianic movement, since the, since the, the pond is so small, <laughs> you know, and if you're one Torah, then it's even smaller. Like if, if you're messianic, okay, then you have a small little pond. If you're one Torah, then the pond is like a little cove within that bigger pond. Um, but you know, I have a sister who moved out and, uh, she lives, she lives quite close. And so my, my parents and her are, you know, we're together constantly. She's actually moved in since then. But um, I knew a girl one time who her parents sent her to Calif- or from California to Washington State. And her parents had basically no clue what was going on in her life. They tried to stay connected, but, you know, she was she was 20 years old. And, you know, basically when they sent her that far away, um, you know, there was a disconnect there. And so I wonder about that with college too. However, I'm 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 so strongly for the education of our children, whether male or female, that I think um, I think it's important. Um. Okay, I I'm sorry. I have to address this. 
Sarah in the chat room has said uh, that Mary Poppins is a witch. Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis are the occult. Uh, I'm sorry, that is absolutely 100% not true. <laughs> That's just simply not true. Chron- Chronicles of Narnia is the gospel story uh, given by C.S. Lewis in a in a novel form. That's what it is. It's the story of the gospel. Uh, I'm sorry, but I absolutely reject that idea. C.S. Lewis was a believer. I disagree with him on a lot of his theology, but he certainly was not writing occult fiction in his uh, in his books, The Chronicles of Narnia. And for as far as Mary Poppins, you know, I, I, uh, I think it's a wonderful story. It's about a, a father who is totally preoccupied with cultural expectations on him that he's not even paying attention to his own kids. And um, at the end, his heart is softened for his kids, and he recognizes that that's what's most important. And so it's a, it's a I think it's a wonderful story with a nice moral. Um, if that if the, some people feel that that's witchcraft, you know that that's they're entitled to their opinion. yeah. Then don't read it. <laughs> then don't read it. I, I think it's interesting. There are still there's still a uh, a uh, a whole section at the SBL each year on C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia and what to, what we can learn from C.S. Lewis uh, and his and his telling of the gospel through the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, okay, let's move on. I hope that that answered questions uh, for our friend Bethany. And it's very nice to see Mike in uh, her father in the chat room. Good to see you, Mike. Happy that you're with us. Okay, so this was a YouTube comment that was left on one of our uh, one of our YouTube videos last week. We talked about this person. Their screen name is Shoftim, and they had commented that we bash the Talmud. And last week we commented and said, uh, "No, we don't bash the Talmud. We are all for the Talmud as long as it's put in its historical, grammatical place." That it can't be read back to Sinai, it can't even be read back into Yeshua's time. It is a late work in the sixth century, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So this person responds and says, "Bash might have been a strong, uh, too strong of a word." I, gu- I guess the question arises: Are the Church Fathers greater than Talmud scholars? I would actually really be interested to know uh, what this person thinks, because I don't think that the answer is cut and dry. Greater how? What do you mean by greater? And which Talmud scholars and which church fathers are you talking about? You're lumping a lot of people in together. The church fathers, quote-unquote church fathers, did great things for the, the community of faith, whether, whether Messianics want to admit it or not. The fact that you believe today and that you have the Bible today in your hands is largely in part because of the church fathers. They helped carry the belief, and they helped work out many, many theological issues that much of the Messianic movement is trying, I apologize, everyone, is trying to um, to, to get rid of now. Um, you know, the whole... We can't, you know what, we... It's, so, it's hard for us to imagine what the world was like for those early fathers. The world they lived... Remember... They were persecuted a minority until the third century, until no, actually the early fourth century. Yeah, and in and they were kicked out of the synagogues, yeah. not recognized by the uh, the Roman because 
because they didn't fit in the synagogue communities that had legal loopholes, that they didn't have to, you know, those Jewish communities in the diaspora that had kind of negotiated some stability in that they didn't have to participate in Caesar worship, their, the Shabbats were protected, their synagogue spaces was protected more or less. Early believers in Yeshua, once they were once they were not welcome in synagogue communities, they. It's not like they just went and built built a new community and could establish independence from Roman worship and stuff like that. They had all sorts of stuff to navigate, and it's it's easy now to look back and go, oh, they, you know and be critical of them without identifying the, their history. Well, a lot of the church fathers, w- w- admittedly, were anti-Semitic. There's no doubt about it. There were some church fathers who were very anti-Semitic. They did not like... Well, the, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to quibble. Okay, Anti-Semitic is not the right word. Okay. Who were not happy with it, the Jewish people. <laughs> or the synagogue, maybe, is what we should say. It's not, Jew, it's not even Jewish people at all, because a lot of those... There were Jewish communities that became believers. They were against the people that, what you could say, the Judaizers, you know, but anyway, I don't want to, we don't want to get into that too well, much. Well, for sake of, of easeability, anti-Semitic is an easy term because people understand what I'm trying to say. No? You don't believe but it that? Was, it's, it wasn't racial. A- anti-Semitism, as, as it means, as it comes out of like Nazi Germany, it's racial. It's like this. There's a superior race and there's an inferior race, and and there's nothing you could do about it. If if you're, uh, you know, that's that was the the world view, and so the anti-Semitism has a properly has a this idea where there's a a, a correct race or a good race and then an inferior race. I that, get what you're saying. I get what you're but, saying. So so it wasn't racial. It was theological. But, it was a, just, but to it was, the point where they, to the point where they thought violence should be done to the people who held to Judaism, correct? I don't know. I don't know about. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look at sources about violence. Okay. Do, you mean violence against Jews, advocated? Yes. By the church fathers. Yes, that's what I mean. Like before Chrysostom. Yeah, I'm talking like third third century. Okay, well, third, fourth century, maybe you start to see that sort of thing. Okay, well, so, I, I would. But you still that. okay? So I, I guess the point is, is that you. But you got it both ways because in the Babylonian Talmud, they're talking about all the disciples of Yeshua that they killed. Granted, okay, and and that's so, that's so, another point is that is that the 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 writers of the Talmud, what are they? What are they doing? First of all, they they don't believe in the Messiah. They reject the Messiah violently. Reject the Messiah. First of all. Second of all, they write a lot of the Talmud. In response to Christianity, a lot of the a lot of the stories that people are so prone to uh, pull out of the Talmud, messianics. This is one thing that baffles my mind. You know, messianics don't a lot of messianics. I shouldn't make blanket statements. A lot of messianics uh, don't realize that a lot of the that some of the stories in the Talmud that they that they use in their teaching and whatnot are actually in response to Christianity. They're trying to disparage Yeshua and Christianity. And so, uh, what? It's it's impossible to say whether or not the church fathers are better or greater than the than the uh, than the writers of the Talmud in terms of faith in Yeshua. Absolutely, the church fathers were greater. 
in terms of love of God? Well, no. The the uh, the the people who wrote the the uh, rabbis who wrote the Talmud certainly loved God, at least the God that they were worshiping. They they rejected Yeshua. So what does that mean? In terms of the their writings themselves, I think that the church fathers did wonderful, amazing things for the faith. They worked out theological issues that are still that we still stand on today. And and I think the rabbis did wonderful things for uh, for the community for the Jewish community as well as preserving something that we absolutely benefit from as believers today. We can look at the Jewish communities of the sixth century A.D. and we can we can better understand. We can have a glimpse into history and we can learn from them. There's a great wisdom in 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 uh, many of the writings. They're not all true. What do you think, Rob? I think, yeah, I think we need, we're in a situation where we, it's like all the books are open. You know, there's nothing to hide. We can, we can see what all the church writers, early church fathers wrote. We can see what all the rabbis were writing or taught. And we're in a position to go through and look at history, put everything in a timeline, see how ideas developed. And then we can weigh them against what we know to be true from the gospel. And we can try to be just in in our assessments, so that we're not going to we're not going to skew the story in favor of the church fathers. We're not going to skew the story in favor of the rabbis. We're just going to let let it be what it is, and be good stewards of the history and learn from learn from it. That's what we need to do. Not this like there was one post about oral Torah and people because. Uh, Dr. Brown, I guess, had a caller that asked about oral Torah. And, you know, one person's like, oh, he's so wrong. We need the oral Torah because everybody, you know, the problem with Messianics is they don't want to account, be accountable to anybody. And the oral Torah goes all the way back to Sinai. And I'm like, this guy does not know what he's talking about. He's bought and consumed and swallowed and painted his room with rabbinic notion of history. There's only... So it's, there's only one. To- go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. He's your just told, he's his whole worldview is skewed now in a way that he he doesn't even never ever need to learn Hebrew. He doesn't even need to know uh, learn the scriptures because he's on board with this myth called oral Torah. See, I think that I think that there is oral Torah that goes all the way back to Sinai and before, and that oral Torah is the apostolic scriptures. The truth contained within the apostolic scriptures is taught within the Torah. Oh, but he doesn't mean it that way. I know he, he doesn't. But he's but talking rabbinic. I'm trying to. I, I'm. I'm constantly trying to advocate this idea that when we as messianics talk about oral Torah, what we should be talking about is the Torah, the oral Torah that was written down from Yeshua and his disciples, which is the apostolic scriptures, which is the New Testament. That goes all the way back to Sinai. The truths held within there, and I know that I know that we're on the same page here, Rob. But you know, I want people to start thinking. You know, when people say our sages, that really ticks me off. When they're talking about the the Talmudic rabbis, those aren't our sages. They rejected our Messiah. They rejected the Rebbe. They rejected the true Rebbe, the true true Messiah. Our sages are the sages from the Apostolic Scriptures. Paul, John, Matthew, Luke, these are our sages. When we say our sages... We should automatically be be following that up with a reference to either the Tanakh or the Apostolic Scriptures, not to something in the Talmud or the Mishnah. 
when it comes to the church fathers and when it comes to uh, rabbinic writings, look, I know that there's a huge push from the Messianic movement against the so-called church fathers. Okay, I get it. At the same time, what these Messianics who push so hard against the church fathers don't realize is that they they owe a great debt to these church fathers. Some of the theologies that have been worked out by the church fathers we still hold today. And if, and many Messianics are trying to reject them, but you know what? What happens? Their faith falls apart when that happens, when they reject those truths. They dealt with the, the text of the apostolic scriptures. They preserved the can Yeah, they're preserving the, the text yeah. for us. We, I mean, if anything, we owe that. Okay, let's go to our next topic. Sorry, that was a, a passionate outburst from Caleb. Um, let's see here. One house, two house, or one for as long as Holy Yeshua is Messiah, the Torah is still for today. We can talk. Sorry, I'm reading something in the chat chat room. Okay. Um, now you're getting distracted. Caleb. I am getting distracted. I apologize. Um, I want to go here to some of my... Okay, here we go. Where did they all go? Oh, they're there. Okay, here we go. Um, this is from our friend Ken. Oh, wait, no. Let's go to... Let's go to the sacrifices first. Then we'll go to Ken. Okay, Nathan says, Sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom or at the commencing of the full rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem by the Temple Institute. That's his question. So basically what he's saying is, um, it's not a question, but it, this is what he wanted for a topic. Basically what he's saying is, should, w- uh, should we consider that there are going to be sacrifices in a temple before the Messiah comes? Or if the Temple Institute built a, um, a, a temple, would we then want to sacrifice in that? That is an excellent question. And one that I don't think can necessarily be. A Yeshua... It seemed, we've talked about, we talked, we've, we've talked about this, this before. Yeshua seems to have, um, you know, he went to the temple, and it doesn't seem like the Shekinah was uh, in that temple. We don't know for sure. But it certainly wasn't a valid temple. He makes that clear. You know, it was corrupt. It wasn't what was meant to be. But he was still there. And Paul still went and sacrificed in that temple, as did the disciples, right? So, so if the if the Temple Institute built a temple and they they allowed messianics to come and sacrifice, I certainly would try. Um, but let's talk about sacrifices in the millennial reign for a few seconds. I got a couple of clips here. Um, this this guy. Okay, now somebody already in the uh, chat room before we even got started. By the way, the chat room opens like an hour beforehand. We have a good time in there. Um, somebody already went and looked at this. This guy is, I, I went back and forth with him a little bit, uh, in the chat section on this video and I asked him a genuine question. And then when he responded, uh, I responded again and then he didn't want to answer any of my questions about, you know, about Matthew five seventeen or any of that. He just said, I don't have time for this nonsense. Um, but anyway, listen to this, this, now he's a dispensationalist, a hardcore dispensationalist. I don't know if people know this, but my father was raised a dispensationalist. Um, as was my uncle, and they uh, they rejected dispensationalism, I think, before they even went to college, uh, much to the chagrin of my grandparents. So when it comes to dispensational views, my father is actually quite a force to be reckoned with. Um, listen to this. Now, th- I, I have specific things I want to talk about in this clip, but listen to this. The law, Jesus Christ came to fulfill prophecy, 
They rejected him. Okay, hang on just a sec. I should let you know, this guy doesn't have a a screen that he's like, you know, with a projector or anything. He doesn't have a computer he's showing this on. He has, now dispensationalists are known for charts, okay? If you ever get a book on dispensationalism, I guarantee you there will be a full section of charts. And some of them might even fold out. This guy went one step further. If you watch this video, the link is in the show notes. This guy has this huge like I don't, it's not even it's like a cardboard foldout thing on like two separate easels. So that's how big it is. And then he at one point you'll hear him you'll hear this like click. And what he's doing is he's unfolding it again. <laughs> it like folds out. It's huge. Okay. Gave them a one year extension of murder. Okay. Jesus Christ came to fulfill prophecy. They rejected him. He gave them a one year extension of mercy. God. What is this one year extension of mercy? Has any dispensationalist ever heard of this? So what he's saying is Yeshua comes, he dies on the cross, okay? And then instead of entering the next dispensation, he gives them a one-year extension of mercy. That sounds pretty made up to me. Saved Saul of Tarsus, gave him the revelation of a secret that was hidden God. Now we're in the dispensation of grace. So now we're in the dispensation of grace, even though uh, Paul, after his conversion, goes up to the temple and sacrifices, right? Not just grace. Grace. <laughs> okay. Uh, grace. Grace. Okay. <laughs> the rapture Jesus. will happen and prophecy okay. will resume right where it was postponed here. So dispensationalism, I I want to paint this picture for everyone. Dispensationalism says that God has these different dispensations, which means periods of time when different things are going on. There was a dispensation of prophecy that happened up until the time, according to the dispensationalists. I do not believe this by any stretch of the imagination. There was a dispensation. um, (laughs) Robert says that was an impressive chart. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, there was this dispensation, according to the dispensationalists, up until the time Yeshua died and was risen. That was the dispensation of prophecy. Now God basically says, okay, the Torah and prophecy and all that, I'm gonna, it's a different dispensation, so I'm going to take th- that dispensation, I'm going to put it up on the shelf. I'm not going to worry about it anymore, at least not for a little while. And he's going to instate this new dispensation. This new dispensation is the dispensation of grace. And in the dispensation of grace, Torah doesn't matter. We don't have to do Torah anymore. And um, and God, when God put this dispensation of Torah and prophecy up on the shelf, the other thing that was in this dispensation was Israel as a nation. Israel as a nation was in that dispensation. That's up on the on. So now God's worrying about a different people. That di- that different people is the church, right? So now we're in the this dispensation called the church age or the ter- church dispensation. That goes until the rapture, of course. And uh, this gentleman is a pre-trib rapture. So the rapture haps- happens and God now takes this church dispensation. He puts that up on the shelf. He takes back down the dispensation of Torah and all that and uh, Israel and all that. And he reinstates that. Now the tribulation happens. All this stuff happens. And of course, what do you have to have? You have to have sacrifices again because now you have the dispensation of Torah again. And uh, But the church is no, no longer around. They have been, they have been taken away. 
uh, and are in the presence of God. This is what dispensationalism does. There are two <laughs> nice things. What? what? <laughs> Andre just posted, I'm pretty sure Ananias and Sapphira were in the dispensation of judgment. <laughs> yes. Ex- yeah, that wasn't great. That was a good point. That was well well said. Sorry, Caleb. I no, you're totally... fine. You're fine. So, So here's the nice thing about dispensationalism. Here are the two good things about dispensationalism. One... They have actually found a way to try to deal with the fact that the Torah comes back in the Millennial Kingdom. It's obvious in prophecy that uh, the uh, sacrifices are done again in Ezekiel's temple. It's obvious in prophecy that the temple is rebuilt. Yeshua reigns from the temple, Baruch Hashem, in in Jerusalem, right? And his Torah goes forth. Okay, the and and people come up for the festivals. So Torah is back, and what the dispensationalists have done is they've said, you know what, that's a problem. So we have to deal with that problem. Good for them, because you know what, a lot of Christianity just doesn't want to deal with it. A lot of Christianity just leaves it alone. So at least the dispensationalists have tried to deal with it. They haven't done very well dealing with it, but they've tried to deal with it. The second thing that they've done that I like is that they have realize that Israel as a nation is still important. They haven't rejected fully. They haven't fully rejected Israel as a nation. They have a quasi half, uh, half breed of replacement theology. So those are the good things. The bad thing about dispensationalism are these. A, it doesn't work with scripture. B, it's totally wrong. And see, you just don't find it in Scripture. You just don't find it in Scripture. Those are the problems. Okay, so, um, uh, but if anyone knows what this year of, what did he call it? Let's find it again. Fulfill prophecy. They rejected him. He gave them a one-year extension of mercy. If anyone knows what the one-year extension of mercy is, let me know. So let's keep going with sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Listen to this guy. I really, I actually enjoyed this guy. This guy, uh, okay, the first one, he gives a reason why. Now, if you ask me, what is, why would we do sacrifices in the world to come? Yeshua was the, was the final sacrifice, right? He, he was what all the sacrifices were pointing to. Well, I would tell you that a picture why do you have a picture? You look at a picture to remember a point in time. And that's what people were doing. They were looking forward to the Messiah. When we sacrifice again, we'll look back. A memorial of what Yeshua did, right? Listen to what this guy says. This is very interesting. Well, to begin with, oftentimes what we do for the people that uh, that believe that there is a future temple uh, during the Millennial Kingdom and do believe that there are sacrifices within that temple, oftentimes to, to harmonize uh, the the sacrifices in Ezekiel with the once for all sacrifice of Christ, oftentimes what we'll do is we will say, oh, those sacrifices that are made in the future are uh, memorial sacrifices. We're doing these sacrifices to remember what Christ did on the cross. The problem with that is that there is no mention, Ezekiel gives us no mention of a memorial sacrifice. In fact, the images that he gives us, the, the, the type of sacrifices that are mentioned in Ezekiel are very similar, if not exactly the same, to the 
sacrifices that are presented in the book of Leviticus. Okay, so he makes a great point. I, I think, uh, maybe it's not a great point. It's an okay point, which is, I think that the sacrifices that will be done in the Millennial Kingdom are the exact same as the Levitical sacrifices. I don't think that there's any difference to them. So this person would probably say that that Abraham, you know, or King David, that they were saved differently. Is I that, don't know. I don't know if would he, he would. say that? So when they no no it, I don't think he would, and the reason why is because uh, I have I have his answer to this though. He believes that we will sacrifice in the millennial temple. Okay, listen to his answer on this. His answer is a little bit longer, but I thought this was this is an interesting answer. So because there is still rebellion, because there is still sin, because there is still uncleanliness, um, there is necessity for the for the purification of the temple in a very unclean world. It's very important to realize the significance of this because I do not believe that Ezekiel is trying to communicate the, necess the necessity of salvation through these sacrifices, but more the purification of the, uh, of the sanctuary and the area where the holy God is dwelling on earth. Jerry Hollinger is the one who really promotes this idea. He did his dissertation on the problem of the sacrifices in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40 through 48. And he concludes with this. The purgation, that's the purification, that word atonement, that can also be translated as purification or cleansing. Uh, the purgation will be required because the divine presence will once again dwell in the land. He goes on to say, because of God's promise to dwell, it is necessary that he protect his presence through sacrifice. That means cleansing the areas that he is present. This has okay, nothing... okay, hang on just a second. So he says it has nothing to do with salvation. I agree, it absolutely has nothing to do with salvation. Um, but it didn't have anything to and do it with... it didn't either, Yeah, too. It, it didn't before so, either. So the, po the point is this, is that point, you, yeah, we need to push it and say, oh, that's why. So it didn't have to do with salvation before either. So it's almost like a straw man. We've set up the straw man that, oh, sacrifices used to be for salvation, Jesus came and did the last one, and now it's over with. See, but but uh, this guy, I think he makes a good point about temporal cleanliness. That is one of the reasons that we will do sacrifices again in the millennial kingdom, is because we will be unclean. Once the temple's restored, there will be clean and unclean again. The corpse defilement will be a real thing. We we will be unclean. When we come to the temple, we will have to be clean cleansed again. How do you become cleansed? A lot of the time you become cleansed through sacrifice. Not all the time, though. The sin offering is not made is not given to become clean again, and this is where his his theory falls short. You don't give a, a sin sacrifice to become ritually clean again. You bring a, a sin sacrifice because you sinned, right? And we know from Ezekiel's temple, from the description of Ezekiel's temple, it seems like that that there is sin sacrifice again, right? So I think was I'd like to read that guy's dissertation. I don't I didn't catch his name. Jeffrey Jerry something. I like this. Mark says, "Do they offer <laughs> They're talking about the dispensation thing. Do they offer low interest grace loans for different dispensations?" <laughs> uh sorry. Um 30 year Yeah, 30 year fixed. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, so I think that I think that that's an interesting uh, an interesting answer that he gives. I I think that in some ways he's right. I think it's both. I think in one way it's a picture of what the Messiah did, and uh, that's why we will once again have sin sacrifices. I think it's also because of clean and unclean. I think there's both going on there. Um, well, we do we want to keep going? We have one here. Uh, we have one more on. Well, actually, we have two more, but we can, I think we should probably only try to get on to one. This is from Ken. Actually, I think it's from his wife. Um, baptism, its role within with new believers, and should it be a continual practice as a mikvah? No, it should not be a continual practice as a mikvah. We know that from Ephesians four four through six, which is in your show notes, by the way. It says there is one body, one and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The reason that I think that the, he actually means one baptism here and not a metaphor for being uh, saved is because I think that he's responding. My father's doing work on this right now, so I don't want to steal his thunder. I think he's going to write a paper on this, uh, but I think. But my father's theory is that he's actually trying to combat the idea that you had to be baptized into Yeshua and then converted to Judaism. Right. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. And so, how did you convert to Judaism? You either got circumcised or you got pricked, and then you had a mikvah. And so, what Paul says is, no, there's only one mikvah. There's only one mikvah, and that's into the Messiah. So I think that there are different times in a person's life when they have mikvahs or baptisms, if you will. Uh, you can use that word for the other one, the other mikvahs as well. When you get married, it's traditional to have a mikvah. When you become the head of a school, it's traditional to have a mikvah. There are other times, and especially when we're talking about cleanliness. You know, if the temple were built, then we would all go and have mikvahs all the time. Baptism was a specific, it, basically it was to show that our life is completely different now. We have accepted upon ourselves the Messiah. And I, I tried to, uh, let's see here, I got a clip. This Now, the gentleman who, who uh, who's speaking in this, I don't know who he is. He seems like a, a genuine fellow. Uh, he has a ministry to homeless people. I don't know if he at one time was homeless or not. Um, he He seems like he has a real heart for the Lord. However, I, I disagree with him uh, theologically. And uh, this is what he says about baptism. Circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. Okay, hang on just a sec. I agree and I disagree. Circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. I would disagree with that. I would say that circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with your justification. Right? True that. Because uh, your salvation as a whole uh, entails many different things, and that includes justification, sanctification, being part of the covenant people. Being part of the covenant people has requirements. Sanctification has requirements. We do things to be sanctified. Justification is by faith through grace alone. There's absolutely nothing we can do to become justified in the eyes of the Messiah. Okay? The only thing that we can do is have faith that God gives us, and that is give, is reckoned to us as righteousness. Okay, so I I understand what he's saying. I know I'm I'm splitting hairs here, but when he says circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with salvation, I would correct that and say circumcision has nothing to do with justification. But I understand what he's saying. So let's listen again. 
circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. It was for not the Gentile, it was for the Jewish people. It was... Of course, we uh, disagree on that. Uh, hang on just a sec. Let me get this up here, too. Well, and the idea it was for. Not only, not only is he saying Jewish versus un-Jewish, which is anachronism, but he's also saying was for, which is... Oh, he's... Like it's, yeah, just wait. <laughs> okay. Let's let's start it over again. I apologize, people. Circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. It was for not the Gentile, it was for the Jewish people. It was uh, one of many Old Testament requirements that ended the moment uh, Yeshua died for our sins. Circumcision had to do with the Old Testament relationship between God and the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with your salvation or his. Now let's go on to the second part of your question. It's about baptism. We do not belong to a church here in Texas and I want to know if home baptism is possible. Indeed, home baptism is possible, Brent. I want you to understand that. Yes, indeed. I've heard you say that baptism is essential and I want to do all I can. Okay, now the reason I included that end part is because he says that baptism is essential. But he says that circumcision is not. You know, I know where all of our Christian uh, brothers and sisters are going. They're saying, oh, what about Galatians? What about Galatians? We can talk about Galatians and the idea of circumcision. Um, however, I think that uh, I think that a lot of the Christian brothers and sisters that we have mix this up. People believe that for some reason, God, although he gave the sign of the covenant, which I, I guess is because they believe this, the, that covenant ended at the death of the Messiah. But... Um, God gave circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Why? Why did God? And we've talked about circumcision on this show before, and this is really Rob's expertise. Um, circumcision was a sign of the... Actually, I, I am not a moil. Well, okay. Fair enough. That's, that's not my expertise. Well, but, but the that, study of circumcision, I would say that you've studied circumcision quite a bit. Circumcision was defined differently by different Jewish groups. Correct. They all weighed it differently. They all gave it different uh, ideological significance. Mm. So when Paul writes about circumcision, that's one of the things we need to remember is you got different Jewish groups promoting different types of meaning and significance associated with it. Paul boils, Paul takes it right back to Scripture in Romans 4, and he defines what circumcision is, what it means according to Torah, according to Messiah, not according to all the different things that other groups were doing. And he does not say it's an entry requirement. Paul never teaches that at all. Other Jewish groups were. Paul says, no, it's not even true. Don't even go there. Faith is the entry. entry. That's, that's, and then once it's like faith or no faith, that's the issue. If you have saving faith, you're in. You don't, it doesn't matter what some group of Jewish rabbis are telling you. Yeah, convert. Can, yeah, uh, being circumcised to convert is worthless. Um, so, but let's look at circumcision for just a second and what it what it is. Abraham had to cut away the flesh, and why? Because he he his wife was beyond the years of having children, and Isaac, a type of the Messiah, or uh, looking forward a shadow of what the Messiah would be, 
um, he uh, he came from a woman who was unnatural. And Abraham, unnatural for her to have ch- children, I should say. Abraham, doubly so, doubly yeah, so. Yeah, she was she was um, uh, akara is the Hebrew word. She was barren, and she was beyond uh, the years. You know, years. So doubly. So, doubly, doubly. And he, what does he do? He tries to do it himself. He tries to go into his wife's maidservant and do it that way. And it and God said no, no, hey. wrong. Yeah. And what basically what the sign of circumcision is is that uh, is the sign of the Messiah. The Messiah would come not by the natural means of procreation, and so we cut away that flesh as a sign that the Messiah would come through an unnatural means of of unnatural means, which is that there was no man involved. This is something God has to do. That's, and that's, yeah. fa- that's why it's a sign of faith. Exactly. That's why it's associated with faith. Paul makes that clear. Romans 4 is where it's all. That's the true biblical uh, apostolic position but it's the it's the sign of the messiah why wouldn't you want the 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 sign of the messiah in your anyway okay so not only that but it was the sign it was a sign from the parents that they had faith not of the child it did not show the child's faith it showed the parents faith faith you can google it um and so (laughs) so what is baptism baptism is a sign of of the individual's faith that they have taken on personally the covenant that they have taken here's the thing Matthew 28 you're at this it's a baptism into a discipleship right yeah exactly and 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 we're also given that it's in the name of the father and the son of the whole and the Ruach HaKodesh yeah. that's a that's a very different purpose of a mikvah it's a very focused purposeful thing the reason uh, later in the early rabbinic, I think it's in the Tosefta, the rabbis talk about circumcision. Well, why is it okay for a Samaritan to circumcise an Israelite or a Jew, basically? And the rabbis say, yes, if there is another rabbi present or if there's another uh, Jew present. Why? Because if he does it without any supervision, he might baptize Ace Shame Har Gerizim. To the unto the name of Mount Gerizim. That is, baptize him with with the purpose of Samaritan theology behind it. And so, or not baptize, circumcise. If I said baptize, and so this this uh, I said ace shame. I, I said uh, I mixed my Hebrew and my Greek. It's lashem in Hebrew. It's lashem har. Uh, in Greek, it's to the name of. So there's a there's it's specifically a baptism into a discipleship. Matthew twenty eight tells us that it it's it's a new life, and it's got a very specific set of priorities. Messiah being the the master, and it's going to be a different. It's going to not going to you know. Uh, what I want to say, fall down at these other pressure groups, these other Jewish pressure groups. You know, it's not going to like, oh, okay, um, I guess I'm wrong. I guess I need to do what the rabbi's oral Torah says because, boy, you know, 
that's not it. So I hope that answers the question. <laughs> I kind of went off there a little. No, that's good. Did you want your your Rob went off music? Sure, let's do it because just for fun. Do I have the Hoff goes off music? Oh my what? word! Oh, oh. I'm oh. gonna have to make a new Hoff goes off just no, for that. No, no, hang on just a second. Hang on just a second. What's going on here? Sound clips. Let's do it this way. Oh, I'm so sorry. My computer's running so slow. We're never gonna get there anyway. Do we have cricket sounds in the interim. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Uh, well, man, nothing, all right. is, nothing is working today. We can let it go. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> I think that's it for today. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I th it, we had a great, great participation in the chat room today. Yeah, there's been a lot yeah, of stuff going Mark's on. last point here, important to define terms. That's so important. We can't, you know, I've got the word Messiah in my dictionary you know, the Chabad have the word Messiah in their dictionary. You know, these other groups have to. And I can't be always looking to the Orthodox dictionary to define my terms, right? That's not the way it works. I think that view is headed for a deep mischief. I totally agree with you. you got to define your terms. That was Dr. Kaiser's wonderful deep voice. Okay, um, so I guess let's uh, let's sign off then. Hey, everybody, thanks so much. Uh, for being with us in the chat room. We do appreciate it. Uh, it's always fun seeing the interaction. If you ha weren't in the chat room with us, please join us next time. You can sign up for our show notes. Uh, you can do that at uh, trradio.com and then go under the broadcast tab and to the Rob and Caleb show. All of the information is there, okay? And uh, yeah, you can sign up for show notes. You can log into the chat room. It opens an hour before our show goes on on Wednesday morning at... Uh, 10 o'clock Pacific Standard Time and yeah send us emails because we need more ideas for good show topics so that we can uh, put together a show with that's not only interesting we definitely want it to be interesting but we want it to glorify the great name of our great God and Savior Yeshua the Messiah 